Welcome back to The Reeducation. Today's show takes a deep dive into state secrecy in light of the recent revelations regarding Joe Biden's mishandling of classified documents from his time as vice president and senator. My guest is Elizabeth Goitin, a senior fellow at the Brennan Center in New York and an expert on overclassification in the federal government. When you saw the photograph of the top secret documents laid out on the floor at Mar-a-Lago, what did you think to yourself looking at that image? How that could possibly happen, how anyone could be that irresponsible. And I thought, what data was in there that may compromise sources and methods? By that, I mean names of people who helped, or et cetera. And it's just uh, totally irresponsible. That was, of course, Joe Biden back in September when the Democratic Party was deeply concerned about the protection of state secrets in the aftermath of the raid of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago compound. Those were the days, were they not? MSNBC guests puffing their chests about stolen classified documents, implying that Donald Trump may seek to sell U.S. intelligence to a foreign adversary. Now, of course... It's a bit trickier. President Biden's personal attorney, Bob Bauer, released a statement in just the last, uh, a little over an hour, uh, saying that the Justice Department conducted a search of the Wilmington, Delaware home and found additional materials with classified markings. Now, way back in August, when the mishandling of classified documents was a hop, skip and a jump away from treason, we didn't know much of anything about what Donald Trump had actually taken with him back to Mar-a-Lago, other than very specific details about just how classified some of that material was. Among the records seized, there were details so classified, so concerning, that it was covered by this classification, material that relates to a foreign government's nuclear capacity. Now, I realize some of you may say, that sounds like a serious matter. What if a foreign spy infiltrated Mar-a-Lago? These are, after all, nuclear secrets. Well, I descended from the establishment consensus at the time, back in August, in part because there is a chance that the nuclear secrets in this case is a letter from North Korea's despot saying how delighted he would be to meet with Donald Trump to discuss North Korea's nuclear program. And just because something is classified, even if it is classified as a nuclear secret, well, it doesn't mean that its disclosure would damage national security. Now, the reason for this is that the mishandling of classified material is, for Washington, D.C., at least, a ubiquitous offense. Nearly everyone does it. Analysts will take documents home from time to time. Senior officials will leak secret information to reporters. Members of Congress will discuss classified briefings with colleagues, staff, and journalists. Whether it's Hillary Clinton's private email server or Joe Biden's vice presidential papers in a box in his garage, elected officials are notoriously sloppy when it comes to protecting state secrets, mainly because there are far too many of them to protect. Just peruse the headlines from the Washington Post, the New York Times, on any given morning. You are bound to find some story that relies on information that is technically classified. And it has been like this for decades. Now, 25 years ago, a panel chaired by Senators Daniel Patrick Moynihan and Jesse Helms, and I have to say, it would be hard to find two senators who were more dissimilar. Well, they concluded that the national security bureaucracy was creating more state secrets than it could possibly protect. 
Here is Senator Moynihan testifying to that in 1997. Uh, we're very much aware of the importance of secrecy and, and, and that if we're going to protect the secrets we need, to, we're going to have to reduce the number of things we declare to be secret. It, it, it is simply a matter of, of priorities here. Moynihan's great insight here is that the process for classifying government information is itself a kind of regulation. And what he means by that is that it is a government process that should be subject to the same kinds of oversight as any other rule or procedure promulgated by the administrative state. In other words, government agencies do not have a right to keep their secrets from Congress, even though that happens all the time. Now, the story on this really begins in 1971. That's when a Pentagon analyst named Daniel Ellsberg leaked a classified history of the Vietnam War that was commissioned by former Defense Secretary Robert McNamara to the New York Times. And the New York Times went ahead and published a series on it, excerpting it in large excerpts of it. And eventually, even the Washington Post got in on the game and also began publishing stories in the Pentagon Papers after the Times began their series. Here is a phone conversation where a very sheepish General Al Haig informs President Nixon of the breach. Very significant, this uh, goddamn New York Times expose of the most highly classified documents of the war. Oh, that. I see. That, that, I didn't read the story, but uh, you mean that, that was leaked out of the Pentagon? Sir, it, uh, the whole study that was done for McNamara and then carried on after McNamara left by Clifford and the Peaceniks over there, this is a devastating uh, security breach of, of the greatest magnitude of anything I've well, seen. Well, the Pentagon Papers were no doubt embarrassing for the U.S. government. But were they necessary secrets, as Haig and Nixon believed? And the answer to that is no. This secret history of the Vietnam War revealed so many official lies that prior administrations told about that war, well, that there was really a public interest in exposing them. After all, this is a democratic country, and this was a major war. In 1971, Vietnam was a quagmire. For example, the U.S. government played a major role in plotting and supporting the coup d'etat against the South Vietnamese dictator No Dinh Dem. Briefings to the public about the strength of Viet Cong in the 1960s were pretty much deceptions, meaning that the Viet Cong was far stronger than the Pentagon would say at the highest levels in briefings to the press and the public. The Pentagon knew that the war was probably unwinnable, that it would be a stalemate, and they probably knew that by 1967. And yet, you know, the U.S. government, Pentagon, Lyndon Johnson, they acted as if South Vietnam were consistently on the brink of victory, and it wasn't the case. And on and on it went. To say that the Post and the Times were in the wrong to publish the Pentagon Papers is to support the dubious proposition that citizens of a democratic country do not have the right to know the truth about what their government is doing in their name. In addition to exposing official lies of the Vietnam War, I should also say that the leak of the Pentagon Papers is the event that prompted the White House to create the plumbers. We've talked about that before on the show. Former CIA and FBI agents who would eventually go on to conduct the Watergate break-in. And before they did that, these sort of retired spies and agents broke into the office of the psychologist who was treating Daniel Ellsberg. There are very embarrassing tapes of Henry Kissinger demanding to sort of surveil everything and find any dirt they could about Daniel Ellsberg. He was furious about this, or at least he pretended to be in conversations with President Nixon. And also, I would say that this episode is really important because the Justice Department tried to get the courts 
to block the Times from publishing further stories based on the secret history that Ellsberg provided, and the Supreme Court ended up siding with the Fourth Estate, ruling that there was no such thing as prior restraint when it came to these state secrets. So here is A.M. Rosenthal, who was the editor of the New York Times at the time, and here he is after that precedent-setting Supreme Court decision on, I think, July 1, 1971. Well, I think it's a joyous day for the, for the press and for American society. I think that today's decision is going to open up channels of information to the news media that may heretofore have been closed. Yes, I do, really. I think this whole case will have uh, done that. I think that uh, people in the press, people in government, and uh, people in, in, in the public uh, will see, uh, as a result of this whole case, that a great deal of information is classified uh, for no real national security uh, interest, and I think that the move uh, will be in the direction of more information rather than less. Now, the Pentagon Papers demonstrates how the overclassification of information deprives citizens of important news that is necessary to kind of hold its government accountable. And in my view, that gets to the bedrock of democracy. But there's another danger of the government's current system of classification as well that's a little bit more subtle. So sometimes the public is deceived when partial classified information is made public, but crucial context and dissent is kept shrouded from view. Consider the debacle surrounding Carter Page. In 2017, it leaked that he was the target of a surveillance warrant from the FBI, and that information alone made it appear that this former aide to Donald Trump's campaign was a Russian agent. And it was sort of pushing on this open door, at least in terms of public perception, because that is exactly what was alleged in the since-debunked opposition research dossier contracted by Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign and overseen by former British spy Christopher Steele. Now, when the Republican chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Devin Nunes, tried to correct the record by declassifying how the FBI was able to obtain the surveillance warrant on page by submitting this opposition research to the secret surveillance court, the FBI and the Justice Department moved heaven and earth to try to prevent Nunes from going public with his memo. What we're told is that on Monday, uh, the head of the FBI and Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein went to the White House to meet with Chief of Staff John Kelly to try to urge him to come around to their position, which is that this memo that has been such a fierce subject of debate on the Hill should not be made public. Their argument is that this will do damage to national security, and it's essentially an inaccurate attack on the FBI. As listeners of this show know, Devin Nunes was right. The FBI used opposition research paid for by the Democratic Party to obtain that FISA warrant on page. And even after its agents concluded that this research was bunk, the FBI never informed the Secret Surveillance Court and got two more renewals for this warrant. Eventually, they had to withdraw two of them, and the court was very angry. And it barred the FBI agents who appeared before it from ever appearing before the court again. And we know this because at the end of 2019, as I've talked about on the show before, Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz released this devastating report that laid all of this FISA abuse out in detail. But back in January of 2018, when the story was heating up, the FBI, the Justice Department, and most importantly here, the elite media, well, they all took the position that disclosing these state secrets would misinform the public, smear the FBI, and potentially harm national security. Well... Zero for three. Here is a key difference between the Pentagon paper era press and the press today. In 1971, newspapers went to the Supreme Court for the right to disclose the government's secrets. 
in 2018, newspapers and cable networks amplified the dishonest spin of the government to keep its secrets hidden. And that really has been a pattern, at least in recent years. Uh, a year or so ago, uh, our government, uh, in a court of law, uh, claimed that um, by virtue of the state secrets privilege, that this couldn't even be talked about in an, in an open court of law in terms of um, the process used uh, for selecting targets and, and things along those lines. But yet, after the fact, we have the same government officials leaking supposedly classified information, the same information that our national security couldn't, couldn't uh, withstand to, to have disclosed in, in, in a court of law. That is, uh, uh, is, is a, a profound abuse of classification and, and goes to a long way to undermine its effectiveness. So that was Bill Leonard. He is the former head of the Information Security Oversight Office of the National Archives. He served in the George W. Bush administration and quit in 2007. And he was talking about the U.S. military and intelligence community's use of drones to target terrorists abroad. Everybody knows the United States is doing it. And I love the idea that this was for so long a secret because it's a fairly loud explosion. You know, there are usually fires. People, everybody at least on the ground knows that somebody was doing it. And they also probably know that the government of Pakistan or wherever would not have had the technology and wherewithal to pull this kind of thing off anyway. In the 2000s and the 2000s, nearly every aspect despite all of that, of the U.S. drone war against al-Qaeda, it was a state secret. And yet it was not only a crucial part of our defense strategy as a country, but it was also leaked in detail all the time to big news outlets, with some regularity at least. And, you know, they were leaks that were on the terms of senior officials who did the leaking. It was an official secret that was treated like a piece of gossip to be whispered anonymously to journalists. And for me, at least, this kind of brings things full circle. because. I am not somebody who believes that there is no such thing as a state secret. There is. There are certainly the idea of necessary secrets. I mean, to, to deny that is to deny reality. So it's possible, maybe, that documents in Joe Biden's Wilmington garage, or for that matter, Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate, were some of these necessary secrets. And I'm thinking just to sort of give a garden variety example, let's say an assessment of an adversary nation's weapon systems that the adversary could not know that the CIA knew about, or for that matter, you know, the classic example would be an agent list of spies in another country that are working for the United States. There are certainly sorts of American technologies that are classified at this point that we wouldn't want other people knowing about. So I'm not saying that there's no such thing as a state secret. I want to make that very clear. What I am saying is that the government creates so many secrets, it can't really protect the necessary ones. And this really gets back to the nature of these scandals involving the mishandling of classified information, you know, over the last quarter century, because they largely expose, in my view, just how arbitrary and capricious the enforcement of the Espionage Act and other related laws really are. I mean, just to give an example, in the middle of the investigation into Hillary Clinton's private email server that did, in fact, at times include classified information on it, even though it was a private server and it wasn't the government's sort of official classified server, one of the lead FBI agents in that case, Peter Strzok, was communicating sensitive information about the investigation on unclassified text messages. So I think it's just a kind of perfect example. And this is why I just don't accept the premise that either Mar-a-Lago or Wilmington is a great breach of our national security, worthy of this sort of breathless attention, until and unless the government explains what the actual documents were and why they feared they would be exposed. 
Because otherwise, this entire news cycle, this entire newsgasm, all of the speculation about Joe Biden and his political things, and they found another three documents or whatever they found, well, it's just another kind of cycle to justify a broken system of state secrecy. And I have to say, I have covered this issue long enough. I'm just not interested. I can't walk down the street. Hey, yo, Diamond, can you make me a beat? You gotta have cheese about a couple of G's. But if I know you, I might just throw you a little something on the side, true. A funky bass line and a hype loop. I got a thousand old records in my crib. I used to hustle, but I never did a bid. Some people call me JoJo. I keep a low pro. Non-stop props, so act like you know, bro. Pass me a mic and I'ma keep it. Yeah, yeah boy, I'm the best kept secret. Welcome back to the re-education. We are really, really fortunate today because Liza Goyton is joining us. She is a national security law expert at the Brennan Center in New York City. And welcome to the show, Liza. Thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I had you on because I wanted to get into some of the deeper issues about excessive state secrecy, something that you've written about for years. And I guess my first question is, Based on what we know right now, is there a concern about a national security breach as a result of mishandled documents, say, in Wilmington or the Penn Center in Washington, D.C., that we've been learning about with regards to President Biden's vice presidential papers? Well, it's a really interesting question because on the one hand, it's been reported that these included documents labeled as top secret SCI, right. and that is the Special highest level intelligence so, information. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so this is the highest level of the classification. It's supposed to be reserved for the most sensitive secrets. At the same time, the White House has been saying that they don't believe that there was any particularly sensitive information contained in these documents. And, and the, the strange thing is that those two things are not mutually inconsistent, mutually Explain incompatible. Explain a little bit it, more. It is, I mean, what you're saying yeah. is that it sounds, okay, so it's the top, it's, this is, this is the most, this is the highest security clearance. I mean, and by the way, we know that within top secret SCI, as it's known, there are other layers. So there are other kinds of special access programs that can have as many as only four people knowing about them. But leaving all that aside, why is it that even if it is top secret SCI, it could still be something that really wasn't a major threat if it was it fell into the wrong hands. Sure. And, and just to contextualize the TSSCI label a little bit, while you're correct that there are some programs at that level where maybe only four people have access, there are also approximately a million people inside and outside the federal government who have clearance and are authorized to access Correct. information at that level. So, so again, kind of hard to square those things a little bit. And really the answer is that there is just massive overclassification in government. And that is really, it is, it is the original sin that underlies all of the dysfunctions of the classification system. And it, and it is not even a debatable proposition. It's, it's been acknowledged by, it's been acknowledged by the current director of national intelligence, but it's been acknowledged by former and current 
intelligence officials going back decades. And it's not a small problem. It is rampant. And there are some estimates uh, by insiders that anywhere between 50 to 90 percent of classified documents could safely be released. This occurs at every level of classification. And indeed, one component of overclassification is the classification of information at a higher level than necessary, which may sometimes happen in order to just sort of narrow the group of people who have access for reasons other than national security. So, so this is really just a, a, an enormous problem. And it makes it impossible to say that simply because there were classified documents found in Biden's private office and residence, and some of which were labeled top secret, it still is not possible to say that there was truly sensitive information contained within those documents. And in fact, the odds are pretty good that there wasn't. And what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And while there are differences between the Mar-a-Lago case and the Wilmington case, the initial offense here, which would be having documents that were marked top secret, does not tell us all that much about whether this was a harm to national security in the case of Donald Trump. Would you agree with that as well? I would mostly agree with that. We have some additional information in the case of that some of the documents were labeled FRD, that's formerly restricted data. Mm-hmm. And that is essentially information pertaining to utilization of nuclear weapons. Now, it's that can include things like historical storage information. So information about locations where nuclear weapons used to be stored. Some of that information is is not currently sensitive. So it does not, it is not a it is not obvious from the FRD label that this was sensitive information, but the fact that it is nuclear information certainly seems to raise the stakes a bit, at least potentially. Yeah, but well, I think I would slightly, I mean, I, it, it doesn't tell us all that much, this to say that it's nuclear information, as you pointed out, because it could, it could be more than just, I mean, there, there are still things that would be, I think, in that file, even though I understand that nuclear information is the some of is the, some of the most closely guarded state secrets in the United States. At the same time, it's that's another area where there is a lot of overclassification. You're right. You're right about that. So you're it does not answer the question. It, it just adds another layer to it. Okay. I guess the other yeah. the other piece of it is Trump's behavior. Yeah. No. With I'm, I'm, to these... I'm I'm conceding all of that, which is that. Well, that's but it's relevant to your question. Yeah. Because I think if, if it is a big if, yeah. but if you think that if, if the evidence may suggest that Trump had these documents deliberately for some reason, or at least really did not want to get them back for some reason, then that opens questions of what he wanted them for. And it, it changes the calculus as to the odds that they included information that that was sensitive. But again, there's a, a lot of speculation there. I think there was a lot of irresponsible speculation as to why he had them, especially since we now learn, and I've learned this in my own reporting, that it's fairly common for former senior officials to occasionally have things that are classified mixed in with the, their personal papers. And, you know, it, it, it's just we don't have the we don't have any we don't have the other stuff that would make it a five alarm scandal, no doubt, if he was trying to sell state secrets to a foreign power or whatever. But I'm just saying that, you know, it's fairly common and and so common that like, you know, I hate to to resist the two cocaine, you know, so common that it happened with Vice President Biden, too. Right. 
Right, right, right. But it's a, but it is not common to resist sure. turning those documents over and to defy a That's subpoena. A point, and, yeah. and to me, it's related because it does it does trigger the question if, if his reluctance to, to get the, those documents back. And, and there's some evidence that there was an attempt to conceal documents from the FBI when the FBI came. So that does raise the question to me of why he had the documents in the first place in a way that we haven't really seen that same. The, 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 there's no reason at this point to wonder whether President Biden had some deliberate reason to have these documents because there's simply no evidence of concealment or anything like that. So I do think it's a little different. But again, again, we certainly don't know that the information that was in at Mar-a-Lago or the information that was in Biden's private office and residence contained anything truly sensitive. Okay. We just don't know. That, that, all right. So I just wanted to do that as a matter of level setting. Now, oftentimes when people talk about overclassification, we get into a numbers game. We get into like, you know, there's this many classified secrets. There's this this much is overclassified and everything like that. But I want to try to get to why it matters. And it's more than just a question of efficiency in government. And that gets to what is this incredibly inconsistent information environment where every day you can read the New York Times or, you know, on a good lucky day for me, maybe my column or other people. And you can find stuff that you know, it was classified and was spoken about to a journalist. If you read Bob Woodward's books, they contain lots of information that was clearly classified information. And there are no prosecutions. I mean, there was a famous case in the beginning of the Trump administration where, you know, information about the transcripts between Michael Flynn, his first national security advisor, and the Russian ambassador were, you know, discussed in detail by the Washington Post and New York Times and other outlets. And that is just part of what is normal Washington, you know, kind of media stuff. But then occasionally the FBI will go after somebody either for leaking classified information or in general just mishandling it, whether it's a small fry like Larry Franklin in the 2000s or it's a really big fry like Donald Trump or I guess now we have a special counsel, President Biden. In my view, that kind of inconsistency about the protection of state secrets and what can be known it, it empowers, you know, senior officials in the in the federal government and, and particularly the White House because the president has declassification authority. But it's not very good for, you know, kind of the democratic health. I mean, what do you say to that? So I think you're probably right about that. I, it's just interesting because there's a, an article that was written by a professor, David Posen, at Columbia Law School, mm -hmm. where he talked about this sort of ongoing, not culture is the wrong word, word but, but practice of what he called cliques, which is a sort of mishmash of a plant mm -hmm. and a leak. Yeah. And then, and that's when national security officials speak to the press about classified information. And as you said, that happens every day. There would not be national security reporting without people inside the government talking to reporters on background about classified information. It happens. All By the, the way, time. I don't have a problem with and, that. I have a problem with the yeah. inconsistency that some people go to jail for like 10 years and some people just, you know, get, get promoted. You know what I mean? Well, so the one point I was just going to make is that is that Professor Posen's hypothesis is that in some ways this system, which is this kind of uneasy tension between these cliques, which are tolerated, and then the occasional, you know, disclosure that for whatever reason, the government thinks it goes too far and they prosecute, that in some ways it, it takes a, a regime, the classification regime, which is dysfunctional in a number of ways and which really would sort of 
just cramp down on first on the First Amendment in a way that just wouldn't be tolerable and that would inhibit democracy in a yeah. major way. Right. That this is this system is a way to sort of get around that in this really informal way that actually does in some ways serve democracy. But having said that, I agree with you that this is a this, that is a poor solution to the overclassification problem. And as you were pointing out, there is a discrepancy and that discrepancy is generally has to do with whether the disclosures serve the government's interest in any given case or make the government look bad for some reason or another. And when it makes the government look bad, that's when you see the prosecutions. That's when you see them bringing out the Espionage Act. And it, it is often we haven't really seen the Espionage Act used very much for these cases of negligent mishandling. Right. I mean, usually it comes out when somebody leaks information to the press and when that information is particularly damning or embarrassing to the government. And that's when we see the big guns come out and the Espionage Act prosecutions and the sentences ranging from, you know, a couple of years to, you know, 35 years in the case of Chelsea Manning. So, yeah. and, and you're right, there's a, 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 just a complete inconsistency, a, a total discrepancy. And it is one that punishes, it punishes whistleblowers, it punishes small public interest disclosure. Well, yeah, small fries. Yeah, small people, fries if, you know, if, if, you're, if you're a, if you know, if you're, if you're 20 something or a 30 something like contractor or official, you're going to be a, a lot more trouble than if you're David Petraeus, you know, the former four-star general. And I didn't think what David Petraeus did, I mean, Paula Broadwell had security clearances, just not high enough to have his personal notebooks. And, you know, I, this gets to another thing, which I want to talk about a little later in the interview, but like all of these cases are like potential damage to national security because these documents should never have been you know, in your sock closet or whatever. Whereas there are huge, huge breaches to national security, which we talked about a little bit in an e in our email before this interview, like the OPM hack, which has all of the records of every, you know, security clearance investigation. The Chinese got to that in 2015. Sometimes I feel like the kind of white hot political scandal attention paid to, you know, high level people who are investigated for mishandling state secrets is in some ways a kind of way of, of, of maybe deflecting attention from some of the, you know, problems within the intelligence community and kind of keeping their secrets secure as it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's helpful to have a bad guy, right? If there's yeah. a bad guy that the government can point to, then the government is sort of the, the you know, white knight who is protecting our security. And then there are these bad guys who are sort of attacking the system from within. But when you have something like, you know, the OPM hack, which, I, you know, my data was among the, the data that was right. that was uh, compromised in, in that, that just makes the government look bad. Right. I mean, that just there, there's nobody to point fingers at. There. I mean, sure, you can point fingers at China, but also how did our government let that happen? Right. And it just it, it, it really does. It really is kind of egg on the face of and that's not you know, that's it, not potential damage. That's actual damage. And there's a difference because yeah. the argument with Mar-a-Lago and Wilmington, unless we learn something else. Right. I mean, so if, if there's something that the government's holding back and, and the facts change and my opinion will change. But so far, these are both hypothetical damage to national security as opposed to the OPM hack or for that matter, like the hack of CENTCOM from 2012 or the State Department unclassified email system. There's a bunch of these things that have happened in the last 10 years that are real damage 
adversaries got hold of information they clearly should not have had. And it wasn't because, you know, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or Jared Kushner or whoever, you know, didn't follow the protocol. Well, let me just play devil's advocate in, in sure. one way, which is that, it sh yes, I mean, our adversaries got information they shouldn't have. Arguably, when classified information is leaked to the press and the press sure. publishes that information, well, our adversaries can read it, right? So so that information yeah. is going into, into their hands as well. But in some of these cases, I mean, I would defy you to explain to me how, you know, how national security was harmed when Reality Winner made that, you know, NSA document public about the, the Russia investigation. What were the details in that document that were so sensitive that our national security, beyond what had already been reported, it, it was certainly a document of tremendous public interest, yep. right, in terms of the NSA looking into you know, any sort of you know, possible sort of collusion between the Trump administration and, and Russia during the during or the Trump campaign. It was certainly a document of, of great public interest in terms of, you know, actually harming national security. You know, I, I, I haven't yet heard the, the, the explanation for for what that harm was. And I say was because it happened. Right. So if national security was likely to, to be compromised as a result, we, we should have seen it by now. So. Anyway, I, so I, I do, th and again, this goes back to this question of overclassification and the fact that a disclosure to the media and frankly, a disclosure to foreign adversaries yeah. may or may not compromise national security, okay. depending on the circumstances. That, that's a, now, I want to just go back historically a little bit. Let's talk about the Espionage Act. It's a Wilson administration law. It's more than 100 years old. And almost every you know, law professor I have ever spoken to has said it's a bad law. So I thought maybe you could sort of say, do you think the Espionage Act should just basically be revamped and repealed? Yeah. <laughs> Why? I would say, yeah, yeah, it's a bad law. So I do think that we need laws that punish <laughs> espionage, yeah, espionage Clearly. and the, you know, willful transmission of, of and then you should say short of, of the constitutional to... definition of treason here. Yeah. Right. Because treason, yeah, you have to I be working right. active for an actively like you have to almost be in a war to commit. This would be if you if you if you were if you were committing espionage on behalf of an ally, you should that is a crime and you should go to jail. So. Right. Yeah. But the Espionage Act is tremendously overbroad and it, it applies not just to, you know, disclosures to anyone, not just disclosures to foreign adversaries anyone who's, who is unauthorized to, to have that information. But it also, in terms of the, the person who can be subject to criminal penalties, it isn't just those people who go into government and sign a yeah, contract. Yeah, me as a journalist. As a condition. Right. Yeah, it's, it's journalists. It's anyone who ends up. And in fact, the Espionage Act criminalizes receiving the classified information. Even when you don't turn around and then... And then and I, sorry, I shouldn't say classified information. It's it's information, national defense information, right. which is char characterized in a certain way in, in the statute. But it, it, it ends up, unfortunately, the courts look at it as being more more or less the same thing. And so somebody who who you know receives classified information with no intent to to you know, redisclose it can be subject to the act. So it and it has absolutely no exception for let alone public interest for whistleblowing. For disclosures that are in service of revealing, you know, fraud, waste, or abuse by the government. So, if you read the act literally, if it were applied as broadly as written, there would be tremendous First Amendment 
problems with it. And I think even though it has not been applied as broadly as it could be applied, it's just bad constitutional hygiene to have a law on the books that, you know, if read literally would violate the First Amendment. So, so, so there's that. But also I would say even in its application, because it has been used to criminalize whistleblowing, because it has now been, charges have been brought against Julian Assange, who himself, you know, whether you want to call him a journalist or not, to me, it, that's frankly not that relevant. What is relevant is that he did not sign any agreement, you know, binding him as a condition of access to classified information, waiving any rights he might have to, to publicly disclose that information. So yeah, I, just so, to talk about, know, can you can you back up a little bit? What what is yeah. Julian Assange now being charged with? I mean, it is now a subject of it's a very fraught issue within UK US relations because it's about extraditing him at this point. But w- just just maybe like give us a little process on like you know what what, what are the what are the constitutional in your view problems with the Julian Assange prosecution in this regard? Right. So in some ways, Julian Assange is is an easier target because he is not a US citizen. He resides overseas. But that having been said, I think there are there are a lot of good legal arguments, which I, I won't go into at this point, about why the first, he is or or he, his his disclosures should be protected under the First Amendment, and and he is being he's being charged with violations of the Espionage Act in connection with the disclosure with the publication of documents that were received from Chelsea Manning. So this is not actually the Edward Snowden leaks, but the Chelsea Manning leaks, who was charged with leaking you know, a quarter million classified documents when she was an army private to WikiLeaks. So, the, the, and that this is really the first, the first prosecution, there's an asterisk to this, but it is the first prosecution that is being brought based on publication of classified information that was obtained from somebody who had authorized access, as opposed to somebody with authorized access having having leaked the information. Now, the asterisk is that there, there was a case back in 2005, 2006, there was an analyst with the State Department who was charged with leaking classified information about Iran to two lobbyists for APAC. And the, the State Department analyst pled guilty and was sentenced to 12 years in prison, although that was later reduced to 10 months house arrest. The two lobbyists were also indicted for receiving unauthorized information. That was a very unusual situation, but the case against them was dropped. Okay. So anyway, so that that's the only sort of maybe precedent we have for this prosecution of Julian Assange, which really crosses a line that the Department of Justice has not crossed in before. And in the past, there's been this line that, you know, people who have authorized access to sign a, a contract right. waiving their First Amendment rights are subject to prosecution. The New York Times, anybody else who then publishes that information after receiving it, not only is not subject to prosecution, they might just get a Pulitzer. For, for reporting that information. Yes. Now, I think as a First Amendment matter, it makes some sense to make a distinction between people, the people who sign the contract and the people who don't. However, I, I think that line should be pushed further in the other direction in the sense that I think people who in the government who are disclosing information of such great public yeah. interest, stories of real government abuses, such that the newspapers that report them then get Pulitzer's, those people also should not be prosecuted. There should be a whistleblower defense in the Espionage Act. Excellent. I want to just quickly get into this is an we're going to nerd out audience for just a second here. But 
in the early 80s, there was something called the Intelligence Identities Protection Act, which I do think makes it illegal for someone to actually print the names of covert CIA officers overseas. Is that right? Mm -hmm. I, I think so. Do we, I in your, so. in my yeah. view, I have to say, I, I think, I mean, that that is a response to Philip Agee's, I guess you could say, I mean, I don't know if it was, say, defection. He lived in Germany and Cuba. He died in Cuba. But he left the CIA and started a publication called Covert Action Quarterly, where he published the names of these CIA officers. We talked about this, actually, in the Hitchens episode. But what I wanted to just ask, in your view, is that, because that law says you can't publish the names of CIA officers overseas. I have less of a First Amendment issue, but what do you think with that? You know, honestly, I, I think, it, and you'd, at some point you'd have to go talk to a First Amendment yep. expert about this. I mean, I, I guess you run into questions about, you know, how close is that to incitement in the sense that if you can reasonably expect that, but actually I'm thinking more as we're, as we're talking, I'm, I'm realizing I'm, I'm thinking more of people who serve as sources in countries where their lives would be very immediately and obviously. Right, which, by the way, was a problem, we should say. I mean, like, I thought there was a lot of great information and valuable in the public interest information from the WikiLeaks disclosures of 2010. There was also a lot of personal information about sources who met with the State Department, and those people's lives were put in danger as a result of the mass disclosure from Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think I, it, it depends on the circumstances. I think at some point, and it might have to be really case by case. I mean, at some point, if, if you if you know that by publishing this name, you are putting a crosshairs on this person, that's reasonably likely to be the result. That might be a situation where there would be an exception. Well, I, I have to, this is a, But I don't know that it's as broad as broad as you're saying that any disclosure of a covert CIA agent's name would- You know, I think you're right. Like it's, it, 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 it's context dependent, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's context. If you found out that there was like a murder overseas and then it was relevant because the person who was being charged turned out to also be a CIA officer. Well, that is in the public interest. Right. If you just decided I'm going to publish, you know, the agent lists, you know, for every every CIA station in Africa. Well, then that's another problem. Right. I mean, it's like, well, well, as a policy matter, that might be right. I think as a legal matter, though. I don't think you need to have some kind of public interest reason to exercise your First Amendment Okay, rights. fair enough. So I think All the right. only, I think really the only question is, are you foreseeably and immediately putting somebody's life in danger by doing it, which then gets you closer okay. to sort of this incitement framework. But listen, I, uh, at some point there's, you want to go talk to Jamil Jaffer at the Knight Institute. No, I love Jamil. Way, way more steeped in the First Amendment. I get it. No, no, no. I just, I was, I was bringing it up because I just want to say like any question, it's not a simple, like, you know, it's, I mean, I, I think you're, Absolutely. I think we, we agree 100 percent on the on the Espionage Act. We need to scrap it and start and do something else. On the other hand, it's it, there are always these kinds of hard cases in this stuff. And it's not as simple. Yeah. And that's why yeah. I brought up the Intelligence and News Protection Act. OK, I want to get to another issue, which is. It, it, it's a it's a deeper question. It's not a legal question so much as. If we had perfect enforcement, which we don't. If we had kind of, you know, or serious enforcement or, you know, aggressive enforcement against the disclosure of classified information, we would effectively be asking the federal government to determine what is in the interest of the public to know about what it's doing. Right. If we had better enforcement. Not better. I'm saying like if if there really was all classified information, you know, if, it, if you know, we're going to get to the bottom of it. And if you if you disclosed it, you're going to jail. So if it, unlike what we have today, which is an environment where there's lots of leaking and everything like that. 
But you really would sort of have like a situation where, you know, it would be the federal government would both be determining like what it is the public should know about what it's doing. And, you know, by because it because it, it would control, you know, effectively what what classified information the public would know. Well, I kind of think that that's the situation we're in now. It's, well, it's, that's in I theory, mean, except that there are like, you know, power centers that leak against one another. So we, it's a, we have that Posner, whatever, imperfect compromise, I guess. But I mean, if you actually enforced right. the, every single leak of classified information, then in some ways you'd be taking away the government's ability to decide when, you know, leaking classified information is something that would be oh, wait, you know, I see. to, yeah. its, okay. advantage, to its advantage right. anyway. So I think right the situation we have right now, frankly, gives the government a lot of power. Absolutely. No, no, I think you're, not you're so right. Much, not so much, not so much what's in the public interest, but what the government thinks right. would like the public to know. Right. Okay. That's, 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 that's like but, but I guess here's what I want to get at is sometimes we are in a situation where we are told because Congress is going to release something. I'm thinking of, for example, the Senator Feinstein and the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence in 2015 was going to finally publish their report on the black sites and torture of the CIA in the first years of the war on terrorism. And the uh, initial line you always get from the federal government is, people are going to die. These are, you know, the worst secrets ever. And then we find there's some compromise and the information comes out. And it turns out, you know, it was, it was overstated. Similar thing happened with regards to the FISA regarding Carter Page and, and, and the, the fight between Democrats and Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee in 2019. So... I guess my question to you is, is, you know, should we as the as the sort of outsiders who are not in the federal government and the, or not in the intelligence community, how much credibility do they have when they say if this information gets out, you know, people are going to be killed or, you know, sec- national security will be severely compromised? I mean, very little yeah, because well, there's you. just, you know, <laughs> I mean, there's honestly, I mean, it's 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 unfortunate, but there's just been such a long history of the government's you know, going back decades, but for, for every era of, of our country's modern history, you can point to numerous examples of situations in which the government classified information, overclassified information, like it classified at a too high level or classified it when it didn't need to be classified at all for the purpose of, of, of preventing the public from knowing about something that would be controversial, that would be embarrassing. You know, we see this all the time. And something that something that really struck me was when the you know the, when the NSA was conducting its program of bulk collection right. of America's phone records, and this was one of the the the, the first and biggest bombshell among among the revelations that Edward Snowden leaked. And you know, this had all been you know highly classified, and it was going to just you know bring our national security to its knees if if uh, if this pro if this bulk collection program were revealed. So, you know, at some point later down the road, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board took a look at this program, did a big reporting program. One of the things that they found was that it had been next to useless in identifying and preventing terrorist attacks. So it was really, it it was a, a fairly useless program. One of the reasons we know this also is because that program, Congress failed to reauthorize it in 2020. And the the government kind of just let it go. There was not like a big fuss about it. This was not a, this bulk collection program was not particularly useful. But the thing that really strikes me is that the, the director of national intelligence, James Clapper, 
after it was revealed and there was a, a huge public outcry and Congress ended up passing a law to, to prohibit bulk collection under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, Clapper said something that I thought was so interesting. He said, you know, we should have just gone being open about this from the beginning, because if we had just revealed this program from the start when we were introducing it, Americans probably would have gotten behind it. Well, can I tell you, I'm smiling and, because that was actually my interview with him for the Daily Beast. Oh, my god! That was my, yeah, was my big scoop. I, yeah. I, I got that one from him. Yeah, I, I interviewed yeah. him in the well, afternoon. Good for you. Good for yeah. you. Because that, to me, was an admission that the entire reason that it was classified was because they thought the American public wouldn't be okay with it, right. and, and, which you know turned out to be the case. And and basically, if these were in fact the nuclear codes, you would not have if they were really that level of sensitive. If they were very very, if it was very very sensitive information, he never would have said, "Oh, we should have just revealed it from the beginning; everything would have been fine." I mean, can I just say so, something? I just is a bugaboo yeah. of mine because the nuclear codes is always an example of the kind of information that should remain secret. And to a certain extent, I understand why. But if the nuclear codes were revealed, we would change the nuclear codes. Uh Anyway, I'm just pointing out that there are certain other things like I would say what AG revealed in the 1970s is really damaging to American national security. And I actually have some sympathy for if you were like, you know, I don't know, if you were like a citizen of Ghana, then I think you probably have a right to know, you know, if there was somebody who was pretending to be something that he wasn't and was actually working with the CIA, that I could see being in, you know, your interest as a citizen of Ghana. But as a citizen of America, as a global power in the middle of a Cold War, it's just the worst to, you know, reveal the identities of your of your overseas officers like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, let's go back to the nuclear codes yeah. for a second. Okay, that's a relief. I'm glad to know that that you know, but but I guess the, the the concern is if there has been not so much a leak to the media, but oh, yes. the codes have been. You know, I I think it's a good thing that the nuclear codes are highly classified. I'm Me gonna too. Put that in the category. Oh, I agree. No, no, and and this is and this is maybe this is. I want to get to this, and your 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 perfect segue here. Let's talk about what are the necessary state secrets at this point. Like, how would you could, could we have buckets of them? Would you say? No. Okay. I, I, I mean, and I'm, I'm just <laughs> sorry to be so direct, but uh, I just don't think it's that simple. I don't think there's a way to characterize them. I think there is an element of we know it when we see it. I, okay. like, I will say, I will say this. I think that the the current criteria, substantive criteria for classification. If you look at the executive order that governs classification, mm-hmm. it basically allows people to classify information in the first instance. So so original classifiers, people who had that authority in the very first instance to say, okay, going forward, we should this information is so sensitive, we should classify it. They have almost unbounded discretion. So as if it is their in their judgment, releasing the information would cause harm to national security they can classify it as long as it falls within one of a list of categories of types of information. And those categories are written so broadly that they provide next to no useful parameters. So, you know, intelligence sources and methods is one of them, but, you know, information relating to the foreign relations of the United States. I mean, that's everything, right? So, so they are not, they are not particularly restricted and I think they should be more restricted. To get to your point about what what should be classified, I think the government can do a better job, and the and the, the president who issues the executive mm-hmm. order can do a better job of identifying limiting principles and, and criteria that are narrower than the ones that are in the statute. Now, 
you know, it's one thing for me to sit here and tell you what I think those should be. I've never worked in the intelligence community. I've never held those security clearance. I really actually think that, that, that this is an exercise that needs to be done within government, but you need to have an administration that is forward thinking on issues of transparency to convene a kind of working group of agency officials who are charged with like narrowing the substantive criteria for classification so we can actually get some some limiting principles in place. You make of the argument that it really is the job of serious journalists and news outlets to make independent judgments as to what the public ought to know in terms of state secrets. That that's, oh, it's really, that does fall to the fourth estate. And that's why in our country, the fourth estate has so many protections in the Constitution. And that really, it's like when the press, when, when there is a feeding frenzy in the press to explore stories about political figures that mishandle classified secrets, I feel that to borrow an old phrase from Christopher Hitchens that, you know, the media is fashioning a rod for their backs because it's our job to ferret out relevant state secrets. That doesn't mean printing everything that we get from every source or anything like that. That's not what I'm talking. I'm saying that it should be this independent judgment outside of government that makes that call and that generally, for the most part, the courts have respected that over the years, but we should get back to it. It's, and, and, and it's a problem when there is, you know, when journalists are rewarded for breaking stories on, you know, the latest in the Wilmington or the Mar-a-Lago documents saga. I mean, yes and no. So I, so I think a few things about okay. this. First of all, I, I think let, let's start with the premise that I think the only information that should be classified is information that would legitimately okay. harm the national security at least. Within that category of information, there may be cases in which the public interest in disclosure actually outweighs that national security harm. And yes, I think journalists can play a very important role in identifying that sort of subset of properly classified information. Now, that doesn't mean that journalists should be the only ones who do it. Okay. I also think that at the front end, there should be a better system in place for the public interest to be taken into account in classification decisions. But I recognize, and, and that should be through sort of quasi-independent measures as well, such as, you know, there's there's a board that's called the Interagency Security Classification Appeals Panel, or ICECAP. And this is, this is a board of senior agency officials from among the agencies that work with classified information. And they review basically requests from members of the public to declassify information. And their record of, de of releasing, declassifying and releasing information is very good. That they, they declassify this, this system right. of procuring declassification gets results more than 90% of the time. So they, they've proven to be pretty good at, as sort of a, a quasi-independent body. The problem is they are dramatically over-resourced and, and they have a huge backlog. But anyway, at the front end, I would like to see better efforts in place by the government to, to put into place some public interest declassification provisions, also to take public interest into account at the moment of classification at the front end, which generally is not done right yeah. now. So let's get as good as we can within government. But yes, at the back end, you are going to have information that is classified properly or improperly and information that is that that would serve the public interest to be released, regardless of whether there might be some national security ramifications or maybe there are none. 
And yes, we absolutely rely on the press at that point to, as you said, to ferret those out and to make those Okay. Last question here, Eliza, and I want to just ask you this. This is a little bit of a curveball, and if you can't answer it, I understand. Should the FBI continue to enforce, you know, the wide range of sort of leak crimes of classified information? I will put my cards on the table. I think the FBI should no longer enforce that because now multiple inspector general's reports have said that the FBI itself leaks classified and sensitive information a lot. So what is it doing? It seems terribly inconsistent to me. And we've, we talked about that in the beginning, but what do you think? I mean, I wouldn't want to say never because there are actual cases of espionage. Sure. No, no. I mean, I, they should, I want, um, I want the FBI all over espionage. I'm talking about leak investigations, which is also what the FBI is supposed to do. And in those situations, I just think that they screw it up almost every time. Well, I mean, leaking can include espionage, right? Well, I guess you're right. Leaking okay. to, Fair to, enough. to foreign okay. governments. So I, right. I guess maybe it's just a terminology okay. issue. So I, I, I will, I can certainly say this in situations where the leak of information served the public interest was, was a classic instance of whistleblowing. I know, I know there's really not a great statute to protect intelligence community whistleblowers, but you can still take those principles and apply them, you know, had had negligible damage to national security, but but frankly, even in cases where there there might you might you might be able to put some kind of hypothetical damage, if this is a a true scenario of whistleblowing, absolutely, I, I think that the FBI should not be bringing espionage act prosecutions in those cases. And frankly, there are any number of other penalties, whether criminal or administrative, that are better suited to cases of to sort of unauthorized disclosure or, mis- or mishandling or that kind of thing, or even in some cases, maybe leaks in a, in a situation that just doesn't rise to the level of an attack on our national security, essentially. And you know, the Espionage Act was supposed to be about for spies and traitors. That's what it was designed for. Well, it was in the middle of the, um, the first Red Scare. It was like yeah, the country. I mean, I understand. By the way, there's there was reason why it was we had it wasn't out of thin air. I mean, Wall Street was bombed. The attorney general's house was bombed. There, you know, it was a, a wild time 100 years ago in America. But <laughs> anyway, I think we both agree it was a really bad law. Liza, I just want to thank you so much. This was such a great conversation. I'm so glad my audience was able to kind of hear your your very considered thoughts on this. And, uh, you know, I would I would also just be remiss if I said I recommend a recent tweet thread from from you on your Twitter account, which I, which I will link to in our show notes. Thank you so much, Eli. This was oh, great. Thank you. This has been The Reeducation with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing. Mm-hmm.